Welcome to House Calls, where we talk to investment bankers from Kane Brothers, a division of Key Bank Capital Markets Incorporated. I'm your host, Dave Johnson, the CEO of Foresight Health and the author of The Customer Revolution in Healthcare, delivering kinder, smarter, affordable care for all. I co-author a monthly thought leadership article with a rotating cast of senior bankers from Kane Brothers. In each piece, we do a deep dive on a fascinating sector of this dynamic healthcare industry. This month, our article is titled, Home Health is Where the Growth Is, The Post-COVID Rise of Platform Solutions. That's a meaty topic. Uh, and we'll be discussing this growing home healthcare sector, how the COVID pandemic is reshaping it, and the emergence of distinct strategies that are gaining market share and fueling consolidation. Today, our guest is my co-author, Matt Margulies. Matt is a managing director at Kane Brothers and a leader of the firm's home health and hospice practices. Matt joined Kane Brothers in 2004 and leads the firm's coverage not only of home health and hospice, but also pharmacy and distribution sectors, among others. He's a graduate of Dartmouth College, Go Green, and lives in Long Island. Matt, welcome to House Calls, where the bankers are always in. Thank you, Dave. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Before we talk about home health, uh, as interesting as that is, tell us a little bit about your career in life. Dartmouth College graduate, BA in government and international public relations. How in the world did you end up in healthcare investment banking and what sustains your interest in the sector? To be honest, uh, going into college, I, I never heard of investment banking. I didn't know what investment bankers did or, uh, or what investment banks you know, were. My education at Dartmouth obviously exposed me to a plethora of opportunities across many different industries. So the more I learned about the options available to me, investment banking seemed incredibly exciting and challenging and, and, um, and, and a great potential, you know, first career start uh, that could give me, you know, the background to expand into uh, another profession or another career. I didn't really know if I was going to be an investment banker for the long run. Fast forward 20 years, and uh, here I am still as an investment banker. You got in and never got out. That's great. Exactly. I also chose healthcare, you know, as an area of focus very early on as well. I started my career at Lehman Brothers and their healthcare group. You know, the healthcare interest really stems from my childhood growing up. My father was a COO of a, a large not-for-profit hospital in New York City, and uh, he took his home, uh, his, he took his work home with him, you know, quite a bit. And so uh, healthcare sort of permeated our, our household as a child. Wow. Started in the family. And by the way, Lehman Brothers, uh, I'm also an alum. May they rest in peace. Let's set the context of this discussion, of today's discussion for our audience. As an aside, after the financial crisis that, that crushed American banks in, in 08, 09, I, I got to hear or attend a, a session with the Canadian ambassador of the U.S. And uh, he made the observation that people once thought Canadian banks were boring and now they were sexy. You know, the same might be said for the home health care sector. It's historically been a backwater within healthcare, fragmented ownership, primarily mom and pop operators, staffed by low skilled, low paid workers, uneven payment. Why is that now changing what are the dynamics are driving its growth and increasing importance? Sure. Look, I think the last 15 years or so has really you know, demonstrated a significant shift in the paradigm amongst the, the home health sector. Home-based care is really a broader term to encompass uh, personal care services, home health, which is skilled in therapy and, and hospice. 
And, um, you know, I'd say that over the last 10 years and maybe even closer to five, the sector has really, you know, been in a renaissance and is peaking in terms of both its growth, its utilization, and also its perception as a incredibly important cog in the care continuum. The home health care sector um, has, and I think will continue to be the big winner pre and also more importantly, post-COVID as the substantial increase in utilization, the result of demographics, uh, the baby boomer trends, patient and physician preference that we all you know about as uh, our loved ones are getting older. And of course, I'd say payment and delivery reforms. Uh, they're all driving the trends here in, in home health care. And as payment reform creates incentives for the referral sources, the hospitals, the payers, the physicians to utilize home health more, you're going to see those trends continue you know, to increase. And then on top of that, obviously, you have you know, strong demand from the consumer and the patient to age in home and to uh, try to remain outside of the facility for, for as long as possible. The last thing I'll say is I still think we're in the very early innings, however, of demonstrating what home health is really capable of. Uh, you know, there's obviously skilled home health and hospice, and there's sort of a, a cap right now. It's sort of you know, the, the high level of acuity that these providers can uh, can provide care for. But I think we're going to see a situation where those companies uh, in the sector are going to begin breaking through that cap uh, and being capable of providing care to an even higher acuity patient, hospital at home. And, and those sorts of programs are emerging today, and they're going to take a greater hold going forward. Yeah, you know, it's, so it's, it's really this uh, interesting combination of consumers wanting to remain independent and stay at home and technology making that easier to accomplish in combination with with payment models that are increasingly putting risk on providers who now need to find uh, lower cost, um, higher performing ways to provide health services. It all kind of comes together in the home, doesn't it? It certainly does. And, and now more than ever, you have a situation where you have technology that enables the provider to both you know, track real time and coordinate between themselves, the physician, the pharmacy. You have a situation where companies, mostly the large and more sophisticated providers, have developed very specialized care programs to care for an increasing acuity patient level based upon proven evidence-based protocols, using a, a cadre of highly trained nurses, therapists, uh, and supporting clinicians. And these programs are really designed to treat patients with, with chronic and highly complex conditions like COPD, cardiac care, joint rehab, and diabetes. And then the technology that I mentioned earlier does an incredible job integrating the business, the patient, the nurse, with the physician. Telemonitoring obviously also provides unprecedented ability uh, to manage the population of patients uh, when the clinicians are not in the home. And then the last thing I'll say is, uh, based upon third-party companies that have emerged focused on uh, the polychronic population, there is a, uh, a situation now where providers more than ever can manage patients' drug adherence and utilization by working with third-party uh, home care-focused pharmacies. And the technology exists that essentially directly links the pharmacy to the patient's EMR. Wow, really, really good answer, Matt. For our audience that might not know the term polychronic, could you just explain what that is? 
Sure. So a, uh, a polychronic patient is essentially a patient that has several comorbidities and requires complex you know, care management. And I don't know the, uh, the exact number of uh, morbidities that's required to be termed polychronic, uh, but it's, le- it's at least two and, and more likely five to, five to six. At a right. And that number of, of people, unfortunately, has been increasing with the aging of the population and some of the lifestyle behaviors that, that people in America pursue. Let's talk a little bit about COVID. Uh, to say that the COVID pandemic has had an impact on healthcare might be the understatement of the century. Uh, we've seen non-essential care flee the hospital. A tremendous volume uh, has swung to telemedicine and other virtual platforms. Home healthcare would seem to be another ideal setting, but it's more a bit more complicated than that. It does feel like we're at a uh, an inflection point in healthcare, and and the pace of change is accelerating. So, talk to us about how and why the volume in home in home healthcare is is shifting, and who's winning and who's losing. I think the uh, the, the clear winner is the the companies that provide a diversified service offering: home health, uh, personal care, and, and hospice. You know, starting with hospice, because it's probably an easier uh, trend to discuss, the hospice companies on average that we've spoken to have seen either a, a flat census or a growing census as a result of COVID. Um, and, you, and you'd expect that. The, the hospitals are obviously trying to push out patients uh, in order to free up capacity for, uh, for COVID patients. You know, the more sophisticated companies with good hospital relationships have seen a, a pretty you know, nice surge of, of census. On the hospice side, the home health is is actually a bit more you know complicated in that the uh, the shutdown of elective procedures obviously had an impact on home health volumes. Uh, the home health companies you know treat patients that are recovering from elective procedures, orthopedic procedures, and such. And so that volume uh, was down in the beginning and towards the middle of the pandemic. Uh, now that the restrictions have been lifting uh, around the country, the companies that we're speaking to are seeing a uh, an increase or a beginning of an increase of home health volumes back to uh, to where they were pre-COVID. I think the trends that we're going to see as the pandemic continues to play out and then after is that the home health companies, particularly the ones that are partnered or work closely with the hospitals, have done an exceptional job managing care for patients uh, during the pandemic. Uh, clearly, the situation, the, the the very unfortunate situation that's occurred within the skilled nursing facilities with respect to COVID is a, a glaring, you know, sort of indictment on the the facility and, and how hard it is uh, to control infection and disease within the facility setting. Given that COVID may not be the last, you know, pandemic or bug that we're going to be forced to deal with, home health is a, a natural to care for patients uh, safely in, in the home. There was some resistance initially about allowing caregivers into the home. Patients obviously were concerned about strangers being in the house and family members as well. But as you know, the news spread and it quickly became apparent that being in a facility was much more dangerous, the consumer and patients uh, have tacked and, and realized that getting care in the home is a, is a safer endeavor and more efficacious. And, and Matt, this is longer term and, and beyond COVID, but how are capitated payment arrangements like Medicare Advantage and some of the enhanced primary care models where providers assume risk, how is that 
fueling the service mix offered within the broader home health sector and the growth of um, of the need for services like this in the home. Well, like, you know, the, the sector has traditionally been dominated by Medicare fee-for-service, and, and we can talk about reimbursement there and, and some of the structural changes in a moment. But clearly, the proliferation of uh, Medi- Medicare Advantage, particularly in home health, you know, began about 10 years ago in earnest and had a pretty, you know, punitive effect on the industry initially. The, the, the payers were paying at a percentage of Medicare, typically on a per-visit basis. There was no, you know, sort of value-based care models, no rewarding for quality of care and good outcomes. And that obviously evolved over time. Uh, where today, you know, there has been a, a significant shift of, of payment methodology to value-based care. And basically, you know, that's fueling proactive patient management uh, that's rewarded. Quality scores are now measured, uh, and that's rewarded. And the uh, providers that have demonstrated good outcomes and cost savings to the payers are able to negotiate, you know, somewhat better rates uh, with the payers. The, the larger companies have been successful in doing that. The other thing I'd say is, you know, being contracted with the payers is critical to just driving volume generally. Uh, the hospitals, which are the largest referral sources of home health and hospice patients, they don't want to have to refer patients to many different options. They want to be able to refer to a small catchment of providers that are contracted, you know, with all of the uh, the large payers in that uh, particular community. Yeah, really interesting. And you, you mentioned the larger companies are, are better positioned to provide this more comprehensive range of services that um, value-based payers and presumably consumers themselves want, right? We all want better outcomes uh, at lower costs. Don't always get it, but that's what we want. So how is this pressure to deliver a broader range of services better influencing consolidation in the marketplace? It's you know historically been a a highly fragmented sector still is in many ways, but how are you looking at the how the sector's reorganizing itself both as it grows and as the need for more diverse uh, and sophisticated services emerge? The sector has been consolidating for some time, and we've we've seen you know significant M and A activity over the last uh, six or seven years. Uh, the last two or three years, there's been you know very large transactions, maybe even. You know, five years back, there's been some very large transactions. The consolidation, though, that, that I'm thinking about is more about the, the mom and pops, um, the smaller providers that, that need to sell or want to sell or are just losing business um, that's accruing naturally to some of the larger providers because of the sophistication that is now required, both on the care management side, the disease care model and specialized care programs that I mentioned earlier, uh, the need to be contracted with a broad array of, of payers. Um, that is what's driving consolidation, in my view. In addition, there was a pretty transformative uh, change to the Medicare reimbursement uh, model uh, that was uh, effectuated on January 1 of this year, which is called PDGM, patient-driven grouping models. Uh, it essentially incentivizes providers away from the traditional therapy patient and incentivizes them to focus on the chronic, highly complex patients discharged from the hospital. And they've changed the, uh, the reimbursement uh, methodology to essentially you know, focus providers not to cherry pick the high therapy patients, but instead focus on the complex cases, uh, the complex patients that are polychronic and, and such. 
And the net impact of that is they've essentially uh, reduced uh, the episode, which used to be a 60-day episode, to now two 30-day payment periods. The providers have to essentially file or make claims to, to Medicare twice. It'll have an impact on both uh, profitability as well as on uh, cash flow and working capital. And so, you know, that is now another trend that's affecting consolidation. And of course, the larger, more well-capitalized businesses will be able to weather that storm easier than the, than the smaller mom and pops. Yeah, follow the money. Boy, you can always count on catchy names, right? PDGM <laughs> rolls right off the tongue. But I, I got to say, Matt, uh, one of my core beliefs is we're not going to change the care until we change the way we pay for care. And here is a quintessential example of, of that happening in a beneficial way. We change the way we pay for care. Suddenly, the industry begins to reorganize around that, that payment methodology and deliver the good outcomes that, that fall from a more managed, uh, less piecemeal approach to payment. So we, we profiled two prominent home health companies in our article, Accent Care and Emeticis. They have different strategic approaches to growth. Let's talk about each of them, Accent Care first. Uh, we interviewed their CEO, Steve Rogers. What's their background approach? How are they succeeding? And I know you're a big fan of Steve, so give us some of your perspective on, on Accent Care. Sure. I mean, Accent Care is a privately held business, as, as most listeners probably know. It's owned by Advent International. Uh, it was founded uh, about 20 years ago and really was the first home healthcare company to focus on personal care and, and Medicaid beneficiaries. The business slowly evolved over time to really grow their home health and, and hospice business and also was one of the few businesses that embraced a diversified home care-based strategy where they wanted to essentially provide all three services in communities, uh, the, the, the three-legged stool approach, if you will. Uh, and most of the other large providers followed suit over time. Even the businesses that were diehard home health, Medicare-focused businesses in the late 90s and, and through the 2000s. Uh, the business has evolved tremendously over time. Steve Rogers has a payer background and has just a very innovative approach to the market in terms of you know, both uh, building a very complex care models, uh, using technology exceptionally well, um, but also in his approach to joint ventures. And while the joint venture model with health systems is nothing new, I mean, LHC was one of the first to embrace it in a, in a big way. You know, Steve and, and Accent Care have taken it to another level in terms of the size of the joint ventures. They're, they're focused much more on large, meaningful joint ventures within large MSAs versus having many small joint ventures with rural or, or suburban hospitals. And they're deeply embedded in, in these communities. The fact that they're partnered with very innovative systems like Baylor, Scott & White, UCLA, and San Diego, and, and some others, they've developed you know, very good data and protocols along with their hospital partners to essentially create a very strong product and suite of programs that really return great value both to the hospital partner and to Accent Care. But most importantly, they've managed to create you know, significant improvements and outcomes for the patients and for the referral sources. Yeah, that's terrific and really exemplifies this concept of a platforming approach to healthcare where usually health systems, but, but really could be any, any large company, 
accumulate the components needed to deliver a full range of, of health and wellness services to consumers built around consumer needs. And in, in this case, with Baylor, Scott & White, UCLA, San Diego, others, Accent Care is the, the part of the platform that focuses on diverse health services. And, you know, they are also able to share medical records and ease care transitions. It, it you know, holistic coordinated care is just better. And the ways that um, companies are coming together to deliver that is really one of the uh, more fascinating aspects of healthcare dynamics right now. Now, Matt, one of the things I love about capitalism and, and America's pluralistic approach to healthcare is that it's not one size fits all approach to problem solving. There, there are uh, multiple models and they compete within the marketplace and some emerge, some falter, but it's that sort of differing approaches that, that, that fuels the innovation. So as we switch now to Emeticis, we interviewed their CEO, Paul Cusero, who is a, is a fascinating individual in and of himself. But Paul and Emeticis have a very different approach than, than Accent Care. Why don't you share some of your perspectives on Emeticis with us and compare and contrast uh, relative to Accent Care? Sure. Um, I think the first thing to note, interestingly, is you know Paul's background is also payer-centric. And so I think that's a pretty telling sign of, of what it takes to be a successful post-acute provider in today's market. It's not just about Medicare, it's about the payers. And that's a good dovetail into, into Paul's strategy for Medicis. You know, they do embrace hospital partnerships and they do grow in the community uh, like their peers, like Accent Care. But Medicis has chosen a bit of a different path in that their belief is, is that the long-term partner of choice uh, in post-acute care should be the payer. And to quote Paul, they have the data and they have the resources, and so they should be the partner of choice. And so if uh, Emeticis can create individual care plans and maintain connections to chronically ill patients long-term, they believe they could be a net winner. Uh, with the payers and, and also with the patients and, and the referral sources. You know, Medicis and, and Accent Care have grown uh, in parallel over the last couple of years and, um, and have both you know, done a tremendous job, both from a revenue and from an earnings standpoint. Both companies have been acquisitive. Um, they've both diversified in that they both provide you know, all three of the, the core home-based care uh, services. It's just interesting that uh, two businesses with really smart people very sophisticated management teams and such have taken a, a slightly different approach to the market. And uh, the exciting thing about home care is that there is so much growth and opportunity out there. Like you said at the top of the question, there isn't, there isn't one right answer to grow and to take market share and to deliver you know, great quality of care in, in a value-based world. So um, I find Paul's approach uh, very interesting in, in that respect. Yeah, plenty of room for both companies. Why don't you talk a little bit about the future of healthcare, you know, particularly from how they're using technology, how they're using data to just turbocharge their ability to deliver better care services more cost-effectively within the home? Data is everything. It enables companies, obviously, to, to both monitor their patients. It allows them to adapt uh, the care plan. It allows them to track outcomes. It allows them to demonstrate their value uh, in the care continuum. 
to both the referral sources, uh, to the payers, and obviously it allows for great outcomes for the patients themselves. I'd say you know most of the large platforms have you know great access to data through uh, best-in-class technology, and each company has you know siloed IT that provides them with access you know via EMR tablets uh, that are held you know in the hand by the clinicians. They have AI and uh, predictive modeling technologies in the back office that identifies complex patients. It follows transitions or allows for the transition of patients from one acuity of care uh, to another. It identifies, as an example, potential hospice-eligible patients within the home health census. All of those uses of technology are, are critical today, but they're obviously going to become even more critical in the future as the sector continues to be competitive and businesses are looking for you know other ways to differentiate themselves. AI will play a, a pretty meaningful role uh, in our, our sector uh, for both you know identifying complex care patients and preventing you know adverse events before they happen. Yeah, and that, that last point is the one I just just highlight. You know, data is what data does, and the real power of these new analytic models, many of them cloud-based, is not only their ability to get the right answer, but to transmit that that answer or that prediction uh, to frontline caregivers with the appropriate type of nudge so that it it actualizes into real behavior changes, uh, both with frontline caregivers and with consumers themselves. So this opportunity for human-machine collaboration to really drive better outcomes has enormous potential for healthcare and, and maybe has more potential in the home health sector than any others as we're increasingly looking to the home to become a primary place of care, maybe the primary place of care for, for American consumers. Very well said. I think the, the point to hammer home is that you know, technology and data is great, but it must be used in concert with you know, the human element. Uh, clinical observation is still and probably will always be the key frontline solution that's used uh, by the providers to use that in concert with data and technology is the obviously the, the best solution, but uh, the, the human element is key. Matt, that's a good place to land, but we're not going to let you get away without doing what we ask all of our guests to do, which is to give us a bold prediction regarding the future of healthcare over the next six months to, to one year. Pick your topic, home healthcare or healthcare in general, but give us your big, bold prediction for the industry. You know, I think just staying on the topic here, um, I'm probably best equipped to, to comment on home health and post-acute. The sector obviously has performed well, you know, pre and during COVID. I believe that the importance of the sector and the recognition of what the, the sector can do and has the ability to do going forward is, is in the process of being recognized by the, the most important constituents within healthcare. The hospitals, in my view, have uh, observed some pretty incredible things that the post-acute providers have done, both with the patients and then for them, uh, the hospital itself, in terms of uh, freeing up capacity, providing staffing where there's shortfalls and so forth. The government has recognized how well the post-acute providers have performed, particularly in light of how poorly the outcomes have been within the, the skilled nursing facility sector. So I'd like to believe that 
home health and, and hospice are going to play uh, an increasing role uh, in the continuum going forward. I would like to think that the government will continue to support the sector through uh, a slowing down of regulation and, and reimbursement cuts and so forth. Uh, that may be wishful thinking. But at the end of the day, you know, everyone recognizes that the sector is the lowest cost setting for care. What I think the larger community needs to also understand that it's the safest and uh, it has the potential to be the most uh, efficacious as well. As technology continues to evolve, you'll be able to see providers caring for even sicker and more complex patients. That's obviously way past the six-month horizon that you referenced in the question, Dave. Mm-hmm. But there is uh, a lot of exciting things to come in the sector. But I, I love it. It's a glasses half full answer. And I'm optimistic, like you are too, that as we unleash the American innovation engine, on all problems in healthcare, but maybe more importantly than any other area, uh, you know, the opportunities in, in home health, that we will see real results, better outcomes, better customer service, lower costs, and a healthier population, which is wonderful. So thank you so much, Matt. It was a pleasure working with you on our article. Home healthcare is where the growth is, the post-COVID rise of platform solutions. Thank you, Dave, and thanks to your team as well. And I think our audience now understands why we're both so excited about the sector's potential. Also, thank you to Kane Brothers and Key Bank. We'll have another great thought leadership article next month covering an interesting topic within an interesting industry that is never, ever boring or static. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, and keep doing what you do to make our healthcare system kinder, smarter, and more accessible and affordable for all.